and welcome to the Keep It Quirky podcast. I'm Katie Quinn, and here I talk with creatives and entrepreneurs who are completely baller, inspirational, and today's guest, Ed Levine, is the prime example of that. He's got a lot of wisdom to share, which is why I just couldn't bring myself to cut out major chunks of the conversation to keep it to a length that has become typical of the Keep It Quirky podcast. I bring you our full conversation today, which I so thoroughly enjoyed having with him, and I really hope you enjoy it too, and that you have some takeaways to boot. I know I did. So I'll skip my usual pre-show ramble, and I'll just make a couple of quick comments. First, my buddy Charlotte, who, who was featured at the beginning of the last episode, who shared her Just Do It strategy... Well, I talked about what an incredible photographer she is, but I was remiss in not telling you where you can find her incredible photos. So you can follow her on Instagram at Charlotte Huco, H-U-C-O. If you're digging the podcast, please leave a review. Give me a shout on Instagram or Twitter at QKatie. Drop me a line at keepitquirkypodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you guys, seriously. Also, okay, I'm obsessed with this new way of eating almond butter. It's a little twist on a classic involving a banana. Um, Inspo from Better Almond Butter's founder, Jordan. I put a little bit of coconut oil in a pan and I heat that up. I slice a banana lengthwise, drop it in the coconut oil, cut side down for just a little bit, like... 15 seconds, just enough to get it warmed and nice and coconut oily. Then I drizzle almond butter on it on a plate and I dig in. It's really, really good. And this leads nicely into today's sponsorship shout out. Thank you to Better Almond Butter for supporting this episode. If you're an almond butter lover and you're not eating sprouted almond butter, you are literally missing out. Better Almond Butter sprouts all of their almonds in a process that makes them easier to digest and and actually allows your body to absorb all of the nutrients this superfood has to offer. Using only unpasteurized almonds from Spain, Better Almond Butter is truly the most nutritious and delicious almond butter around. You can get Better Almond Butter in three flavors, sweet and salty, toasted, and truly raw. Head on over to betteralmondbutter.com and buy it with the offer code KEEPITQUIRKY to get 10% off. That's a good deal. Again, that's the offer code, keep it quirky. And by buying this delicious almond butter, you're also supporting the podcast. So thanks, guys. Ed Levine is the founder of the popular, respected, and groundbreaking website, Serious Eats, a food site that now has over 10 million unique visits a month. I wanted to create a place online that was like a clubhouse for food enthusiasts for people who wanted to share their passion. And that's exactly what he did. He hired me as an intern a decade ago, and over the years, he's really become a mentor. Everyone at Serious Eats endearingly calls him the Serious Eats overlord. So let's hop right on in. Ed visited London, and I joined him on his breakfast tour around the city over the course of the week as his food photographer. So we're at Luca, which is this Italian restaurant that that is uh, started by a restaurant group that has a Michelin-star restaurant that I don't even know the name of. But I decided that it would be interesting to see what's happening with breakfast in London, figuring that they've gone beyond the English breakfast. So I haven't really had one English breakfast here. I've had many breakfasts in England, in London, but not... Uh, English breakfast, which has been really cool because there are places like this, which is Luca. And we recorded this in a booth in the corner. Okay, I have to just stop myself and pinch myself a little bit that um, Ed Levine is today's guest because to say that he is an inspiration is um, an the understatement of the century. I've known Ed for a really long time. I feel honored enough to have known Ed for almost a decade now. And um, it's true. It's true. And so before I go on any more about who you are and what you do, let me just officially introduce you, Ed Levine, to the Keep It Quirky podcast. (laughs) Well, it's great to be with you, Katie. It's with this backdrop over food at the table, of course, that I was able to go beyond food with Ed. And we get into all that. Well, we are on our second breakfast. And <laughs> as Katie knows that, you know, I always tell anyone who works at Serious Eats that the great ones learn to eat with pain. 
So, you know, we this is our second breakfast. We had another breakfast at a place called the Modern Pantry, right around the corner, started by an Australian chef, I guess. And there we had really interesting waffles that weren't sort of halfway between sweet and sweet. They were both sweet and savory, and also a a, a, prawn, a chili prawn omelet, which was unique. So I have been discovering lots of great breakfasts that are not English breakfasts. And I, th- I think that you hit what makes London's food scene so exceptional right now, and it is not the typically British cuisine that is making it exceptional. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and you know, I haven't been to Lyle's. I did go to um, Rochelle's Canteen, which is uh, one of these places serving contemporary uh, British food, and it was great. It was sort of, it was more like, you know, um, California cuisine than anything else. You know, it's like really simple preparations using great ingredients, you know, uh, in the hands of really skilled chefs. You know, that people always talk about, oh, great ingredients. All you need is great ingredients, and you can make great food. Yeah, if you know how to cook, you know. And so the idea, there's this thing that people say that, oh, all you need is great ingredients, and then you'll automatically produce great food. Yes, a great chef or a, 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 with the craft needed to make great food, like at Rochelle's Canteen, like they made perfect pate and perfect caramel ice cream and this perfect lemon treckle tart, and like everything was just exquisite and simple and so I think that's from what I can tell in talking to British food writers that's what's going on it's not just that people are using great ingredients and there's big chef scene here but also the all the effects of all the the different immigrant groups have come and so you get genuine not only authentic food but then you get you get chefs who come from a different culture come to London and sort of it, it, it and they and they it cook food that's not really fusion food but it's it's food that's been infused with some elements of the culture they came out of so they may be a completely fully trained chef but they may be a Korean Uh, and they've come to London or they may be a Pakistani and they've come to London or whatever. And so, I mean, that's what's great about London is it's, it's like New York that way. It's like the food is affected by all the immigrants, you know, by what um, the old mayor of New York, David Dinkins, who's still alive in his 90s, used to call the gorgeous mosaic of New York and London is, a, is another gorgeous mosaic and uh, and that mosaic includes the food scene so that's what's fun about it and for all of you listening something I want to point out um, about Ed and the way he thinks about food and, and this is the very personification of what he has created at Serious Eats is that he, he's very discerning about about what he tastes. I mean, as he's describing these dishes that we've gotten, um, it's it's always okay. So you know, people who watch movies and they, they like a movie and say, "Well, why did you like it?" Oh, I just liked it. And you know that happens all the time with food too. And and so what Ed and Serious Eats stands for is thinking about it. Why do you like it? Or why don't you like it? Um, and I hope that you have just can, can see that um, because Ed emanates this. Um, but it's it comes from a positive place. So it's, yeah. it's not from a place of like tearing anyone down if it's not perfect. It's just noticing and... And, yeah. and some people, look, even here, right, we had things that were great and things that weren't so great. So that mortadella sandwich was awesome. That ricotta spinach and uh, pistachio sort of open-faced focaccia sandwich was really good. And that croissant was great. And the yogurt was coconut yogurt with, you know, seeds and fruit and nuts. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. I mean, the whole thing is... And this is what Serious Eats was initially built on. It's obviously become much more about technique and, and recipes. But is this 
discernment without being snobbish and with the realization that at a restaurant, even a really good restaurant, not everything is going to be great. And that's, you know, it's like, and you know what? I never heard from anybody because they knew I wasn't coming from a place of snarkiness. Like I, even in that book, and that book was written over 25 years ago, you, I didn't include, in order to be included, and I went all over the five boroughs of New York, and everyone thought, this was at a time when people thought you needed a, a visa to go to Brooklyn, you know? And everyone, like, people who wrote about that book was like, he went to Brooklyn to eat. Like, I'd gone to some, I'd taken a spaceship to Mars, you know? How times have changed. Yeah. But, but um, what's the point of including places to eat in a, in, in a guidebook, even if it's an idiosyncratic and, and, and interesting guidebook of saying this place sucks you know unless the the only time I did I think I did it with one or two sort of really old institutions I think I did it to I I reviewed um, this Kanish place Jonas Schimmel's because I the Kanishes were terrible and I didn't want people to go, you know? <laughs> it was like a hundred year old place, but it didn't, just because some place is a hundred years old, this is another thing that I've learned. Just because it's lasted doesn't mean it's delicious. Sometimes it does, and sometimes old places are great. But, so but that was the only place I included, I think. So how does a place like that last then? Is it tradition? I think it's tradition. I think it's like, oh, you know, and people have to check it off. Oh, if you're, if you're, if you're food obsessed, oh, I have to go to Jonas Schimmel's. And it's like, it almost doesn't matter what the Kanish tastes like. So, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's always been the, the orientation of the site also. Um, is we're really not there. We're honest without being snarky. You know, like I, an eater used to do this, and I love eater, but they used to do this thing called death watch. You know, when it was, they were predicting the demise of restaurants. And I used to hate that because, you know, what serious eats... I was, it was a dream of mine to do Serious Eats, and it was, and it was about other people's dreams in the food world, you know, so like, I just thought, why are you, why are you, you know, you, you don't realize that when, if that restaurant goes under, like, that could be an immigrant couple, that could be... You know, that could be somebody's dream that's just gone down the drain. And I'm just, I was never interested in covering that. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember I had a, I had breakfast once with Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker. And and he was like, this is right in the beginning when the site probably sucked. It was (laughs) three months old, the way all things that are just starting suck. But he said, well, I looked at your site. It's quite nice. I don't want to imitate a British accent in London, but he said, but I've heard, he said, but there's, there's no gossip on the site, but he said, I've heard about you. You're too nice. And so, but to me, it's not a matter of being nice or not. You can be honest without being snarky, you know, and I think that's an important distinction to make in the food world. In a world with so much snark, it really has differentiated Serious Eats. Yeah. And so you founded Serious Eats back in 2006. 2006. Everyone thought I was insane. I would have been a regular contributor to the New York Times. I'd written a few books. And I just I had this idea that there was a... That I wanted to create a place online that was like a clubhouse for um, food enthusiasts, for people who wanted to share their passions. And there was nothing like that that existed online at no, the time? No. I mean, Eater, I think, came on the scene maybe a year before Serious Eats, maybe less. And I started blogging as Ed Levine Eats. 
and then put together this idea and this business plan for Serious Eats, which was going to include other bloggers. I realized there were there were a lot of look there are a lot of terrible food blogs, but there's also at the time there were a lot of really interesting food blogs, um, and they had no way to monetize or little. And so I figured if we put them together, and I added my voice, and I brought in Adam Kuban, who'd started Slice and Hamburger Today, to be my managing editor. And I also, I mean, I was lucky enough to have um, uh, David Karp, who founded Tumblr, to be our chief technology officer, just because he happened to be working in the same offices I was working in when I started Serious Eats. So it was kind of became this accidental dream team, you know, with me being the least experienced and least tech savvy person. Like I was just a crazy old guy with a lot of ideas. Well, you were the voice. Yeah, yeah. It was my voice, which is democratic, but discerning, you know, as we've talked about. And, and... And, and it's still to this day, and here we are, you know, over 10 million uh, unique users a month and mostly about recipes and technique, but it still has that democratic and discerning voice. Whether it's people writing a recipe or telling you the best way to poach an egg, doesn't matter. Is Democratic and discerning is the through line of Serious Eats, you know? I never really thought of it in quite that succinct a way, but it's true, you know? And it's like, um, and it's still true. And I still think there's a, it, it occupies an important place. You know, maybe not so much in London, although my friend Danny Young told me that, you know, people like you, well, you, you, you're a recent emigre, but you know, the, the London food people know serious eats, like the serious, he said, but you know, there's so much other noise online, and there is. The great thing and the terrible thing about, about starting, whether it's a website or an Instagram account, is that there's no barrier to entry, right? It's like, do you have five minutes? You can start a, you can start a website, you can start a blog, you can do whatever you want. What it means is that the signal-to-noise ratio in terms of online content is out of whack. There's just so much noise, right? There's so, so it's hard. It was easier back in 2006. Now everyone has, and now they don't even do websites, right? If people want to start a business in food, uh, content creation, they're probably going to start an Instagram uh, account. But but what happens then? And and this is this gets back to democratic and discerning. So and I never really thought of this before, but if you form an Instagram account and you learn to take beautiful pictures and you understand how to game the system and how to cross-pollinate between other Instagrammers and you're willing, you're not, I think they're, they're less journalistic endeavors and they're more marketing endeavors. You know, it's like, and look, Katie, you work, you understand, and we've done it too, but, you know, there are people with Instagram accounts with big followings who, you know, big companies say, look, can you just, you know, write 10 recipes and take 10 beautiful photos using our yogurt or our almond milk or whatever it is, and they do it. I don't know what the journalism there is. Like, what do you, what, what, to me, journalism is about scratching an itch. You know, it's about, it, you have to have some curiosity, like, why is this thing like it is? And it doesn't matter whether it's food or politics. Like, it could be, you know, if you're covering Donald Trump, you you got to be scratching ears. Like, why did he say that? You know, what's the background? What's the history of that? Where where does that come from? And I think what happens now with the proliferation of Instagram accounts and things like it is that people aren't doing it because they're curious. They're not doing 
any reporting. They're not. It's just here's a beautiful picture of a yogurt parfait. And I just, and maybe that just makes me an old fogey. You know, it's possible. Yeah. Well, and it, it, Instagram is a visual medium. In, that's how it was born. So I think the fact that it is now vaguely becoming a place of journalism, of course the journalism is not up to your standards or what it would be if it began yeah. as a printed medium to begin with. For sure. And I think, you know, with Instagram stories and all that, they're, they're getting better and I think ultimately you know I always laugh about um, people want uh, they talk about influencers and influencers to me when I think about influencers in the food world I think about like the great thinkers you know, like Jeffrey Steigarten or Vogue or uh, Pete Wells, the restaurant critic of the New York Times. You know, there are all these really super smart people who have been writing about food for a long time. But that's not, when people talk about influencers, that's not who you're talking, they're just talking about people with big Instagram followings or with big Twitter followings. And I hope that changes, you know, and that some of those people will get into storytelling and and discerning storytelling, you know. But that's, I think we're at this weird stage and of course it's changing so fast, you know, and Sirius East has had to change with it and we, we're you know, very active in social media and all that, but at its heart, you know, at its heart of Serious Eats, it's like, we take deep dives. It's not a photo and a caption. You know, Kenji wrote 15,000 words on his exploration to make the best chocolate chip cookie. And for those of you who don't know what Ed's talking about here, Kenji Lopez-Alt of Serious Eats and also of the massively popular book, The Food Lab. He is an Ed Levine protege. You, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't say, he wouldn't, he wouldn't like that characterization and it's, and, and, and it's actually not right. Um, but you hired him, you I gave hired, him a shot. I hired him. I, 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 he didn't learn anything about cooking or his approach to food. We shared, what we did share was this democratic but discerning voice. Um, and uh, he always says, well, we're, we're not, we're snobs, but we pretend we're not. <laughs> and that's what democratic but discerning is. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to hop on the democracy of serious eats because I think it goes a couple different ways. First of all, in the way that you look at food, that something's not automatically better because it comes from a Michelin-starred restaurant. So there is a democracy in how you look at all kinds of foods, everything that a human would eat. Also, I would say there's democracy in the people you choose to represent Serious Eats in your community. And I am speaking from experience because in 2009, I was a, this is when we first met. I was in New York working at NBC in the PAGE program and I was an obsessive Serious Eats consumer, meaning that I checked, I refreshed your site at least six times a day. And, um, And I ended up becoming an intern for you guys. So the reason that that is the definition of democracy to me is that I was a 22 year old, like no, no experience in the food media industry, just a really sincere interest. And, and you guys gave me a shot and you also opened my eyes to the career paths that can come out of following that interest. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's been one of the, I think the unexpected and, and maybe the greatest pleasure I've derived from Serious Eats is people like you. And look, we let's face it, we we had interns. You never, you never. I never asked you to get a cup of coffee for us. I never asked you to to uh, to make copies. Our interns. I just found the smartest, most passionate people I could. 
basically found out what they wanted to do and just said, I'll help you do it in any way that I can. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so all these interns have gone on to do things like you do, and um, a lot of them ended up working for the site. Um, one of them, Nikki Gastroff Gray, is now the managing editor. And if you know, if you were good, and I didn't have a job for you, and unlike you, who knew what you wanted to do, you know, I would just call people and say, "Hey, you know, I have this great intern. I don't have a job for him. You need to hire them." And I have to say that. Ed, you are one of the most well-connected people in New York, in the food scene specifically, but beyond that too. And I want to, I want to jump beyond because we could talk about the Serious Eats legacy for a long time, and we can come back to it. But now I want to get to what you're doing now, which is still you still have a big part of Serious Eats. This is you've sold it to a right. company called Fexi, right? And and I feel like you are in a unique position, you're taking advantage of all these incredible people you know in the industry, and you're having conversations with them, which you are then sharing with people yeah. through your podcast, Special Sauce. So talk to me about this stage in your career. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny thing, you know, because Serious Eats was the most, most, both the most rewarding thing I've ever done in so many ways, but also, the most difficult thing I've ever done. And I'm writing, one of the things I'm doing right now, because we did sell the company two years ago to a company that's letting us do our thing, man. They have not trimmed our sales in any way. They understand what makes serious seats, serious seats, and they let us do our thing. So that's great, but I'm also writing a book about the struggle and pleasure that were serious eats in equal measure. You know, just trying to make it a business because there were no businesses like it. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, all I could tell people in the beginning, people I was asking to invest, it's like, hey, it's going to be great. Like, that was my pitch. It's going to be great. Really not a pitch that people that want to write checks want to hear. You know, they want to hear other things. But so um, I'm writing a book about it, which has really been um, both therapeutic and really helpful in helping me gain some perspective about the struggle. Um, Because it's funny when you're struggling and you're doing something you've only dreamed about doing, the struggle tends to overwhelm everything else because you're worried that the struggle will overtake and and you'll crash. And so it was always like this incredible balancing act. It was like, are we good? Are we good? Are we good? Are we good? And then, so we are good. Um, it's still, you know, uh, by the way, it's not any easier to make websites into profitable businesses that's been written about widely, right? I'm not saying anything original here, but, you know, um, Google and Facebook have such dominant positions in um, the digital uh, advertising marketplace. It makes it hard whether you're Serious Eats or Condé Nast or Vox or any big big company to try to make it um, a self-sustaining business. But the Fexi people have let us do our thing. It's been growing. Uh, So I'm still overseeing it. I'm the CEO and I'm writing this book and I'm doing my podcast. And I'm, and so it's, um, you know, it's, it's at a, I'm at a different stage because I'm not going to do another series of seats, you know? It's like, uh, just because um, I think I've established something that might be, with, with some lock, knock on, whatever, um, will be my legacy. You know, it's like, and if it's a legacy of democratic but discerning um, food editorial, that's pretty great. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and and also, you know, getting the opportunity to somebody's paying me to write my life story. You know, <laughs> that's pretty cool too. Does it? Does your book have a name yet? So, the the title they want to call it Serious Eater colon something. <laughs> that's all I know now. And so we've been going back and forth, and I've probably written half it. It's due to the publisher in June, so it will come out. I guess they want it to come out the spring of 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's, it's, so that's pretty great. And, and Special Sauce is, is really fantastic because it's a, uh, as, as you know, it's, it's a conversation between equals, it's, which is a different kind of uh, one-on-one interview than you might hear on the radio, you know, and there are lots of great interviewers, um, both here and in the States. Um, But these are usually people that I have known for a long time. And, you know, one of the great things, I don't know if you find this true, and my friend Brian Koppelman, who has a great podcast called The Moment, said, you know, here's the difference between podcasts and what, you know, and I used to host a show on public radio in New York. The difference between a podcast and a, and a, and a radio show is that in a podcast, the host is actually a character. It's, they're not just a facilitator of conversation. You, they are, like you are doing right now, but you also get to weigh in. And once he told me that, well, that's fun, you know? And so when you listen to Special Sauce, the guest might say something, whether it's Tom Colicchio or, or whoever it is, um, and then I'll say, oh yeah, that reminds me of, you know, like, hey, when I started Series East, or, you know, where I wrote this book, and that's what you don't get to do on radio. Right. On the radio, it's all about the sub, the interviewer, E. Right. And a podcast is, if, if I, I find the best ones are real conversations, seemingly between equals, even if you're faking it. <laughs> and you always got to start by faking it. Yeah. I want to mention some of, because you just mentioned Tom Colicchio, but I just want to mention some of the other guests you've had on. Jacques Torres, who is Mr. Chocolate, Daniel Belude, Fuchsia Dunlop, who we mentioned earlier, Dan Barber, Andy Ricker, Frank Bruni, Marcus Samuelson, Ruth Reichel. The list goes on and on. These are truly A-list names. And as you just mentioned, it's a conversation between equals, which is so rare to hear people that I can speak for me that I put some of these people on a pedestal and so to hear a conversation where they are not on a pedestal they're an equal with the interviewer is really really special and as a new podcaster myself thank you for for bringing up um, this point about radio versus podcasting because Terry Gross is such a she is she is one of those people I put on a pedestal goddess of, of, of radio interviews. She is, but that is the difference between podcasts. And so um, to perhaps insert myself more as you do and uh, that Terry Gross does not as much, um, but it's really fun. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I was once interviewed by Terry Gross for, um, I wrote a book about pizza <laughs> many years ago, which turned out to be prescient in a lot of ways. But um, again, it was democratic, but discerning about pizza. Um, and I was curious about pizza's origins and got to do a lot of research and go to Italy and all that stuff. But when Terry Gross interviewed me about that book, I said to her producer, well, they called me and said, oh, we want, Terry wants you to be on the show. And I was like, great. I said, I know I used to record some pieces down at... Um, at the public radio station in Philly, which is where it emanates from. So I said, I can just take the train down to Philly. And she said, no, Terry doesn't want you to be in the same room. It's fascinating. That's surprising. She just go to the studio, you know, Carnegie Hall in New York, that building has a lot of little studios, a lot of little places and rehearsal studios and some uh, audio setups and 
So she said, go to the studio and we'll call you. And I thought that was so interesting because a few times, I don't know if you've tried this, uh, Katie, because a few times I've tried to do phone phoners. If it's not somebody I know really well, like if I can do a phoner with Kenji or, um, and it's fine. Uh, but, you know, I once did a phoner with Michael Pollan whom I didn't know particularly well. So we weren't equals. I was just another guy interviewing Michael Pollan. So what does that do? Michael Pollan has a shtick. The way we all do, I get it. I could not get him to say anything that he hadn't said one thousand times. It was fascinating because it was on the phone. And so with Terry Gross, I was fine. It was great, but it was interesting that she doesn't want, she doesn't want the intimacy that we're having right now. The way, you, and, and I've done 95% of my, of special sauces are like this. Yeah. You're in a booth, you know, it's in a sound studio, but we're sitting across from each other. We're looking at each other. We're watching facial expressions. She doesn't want that. Yeah. She wants the journalistic distance and she, and she generates more of it by having you be in a different place. That is fascinating. I think that the dynamic that people share when they're sitting together over a table like we are right now, it's it's impossible to replicate really any other way. FaceTime, Skype, like, nope, sorry, it doesn't quite do no. it. And so what do you think of the role that food plays in getting to know someone over a table? Culturally, what? Tell me your thoughts on that importance. Well, I, I mean, look, food is the great um, common ground, you know, uh, which is one of the reasons why I've been interested in exploring the food culture because food touches politics and economics and touches issues of race and class and and. Uh, immigration and there isn't one thing that the food world doesn't touch and so to me uh, the food culture is endlessly fascinating and you can go off in whatever direction you want and you know we don't do in the beginning at Serious Eats we wrote about anything and everything our purview was the world of food writ large and now it's probably a little more focused, which it probably has to be. But just in general, that's why I'm still interested in talking to people about the food culture. It's evolving so fast. The immigrants in any given place refresh the food scene in, in a way that nothing else can. And so then you get, you know, first someone will come from Pakistan. Maybe they have been a master chef in Pakistan. They can't find a job, you know, so they'll open a Pakistani takeout place or whatever in London. And then all of a sudden, well, if they're a really skilled cook, you know, then they decide, okay, we're going to do something a little different. And just and that's the way food cultures evolve in cities. And in a city like London, you have so many people that that have come here to seek a better life, to find a more interesting life, whatever it is. And that in turn produces this incredible food scene that you have here, and you know, that they have in Paris now, that you have in, they have it in, 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 in cities in the US that you wouldn't even think, you know. The Columbus food scene is full of immigrant food. Columbus, Ohio. You're from Ohio. And, you know, I have a friend who lives in Columbus. She says, you should see there are people giving ethnic food tours here. And I was like, Columbus? There's Jenny's ice cream, you know? And it's like, it's awesome. And I used to go to this barbecue joint because my son went to college in Ohio, too. But so I think food is one of those things that brings people together it also, you know, my friend Phil Rosenthal has a show on Netflix called um, Somebody, Somebody Feed Phil. And in it, he goes all around the world, Thailand, Mexico City, and he almost invariably ends up on each show having 
a family meal, usually with the chef's family or um, somebody who lives in that city who he's gotten to know in the series or someone told him to look up. And, and you see that food is this fantastic unifier. You know, um, even, obviously people have different uh, food, uh, they eat different foods, but food itself and the sharing of food and, and coming together around a table sort of produces a kind of, um, you know, uh, tightly woven fabric, you know, that, that's really the essence of, uh, of, of the planet moving forward. You know, it's like, we, I, I think food can play an important role, even though it seems trivial. Yeah. And we, we need that kind of more than ever right yeah, now. So for sure. Let's it's, lean into it. Yeah, it's, I mean, we're at a point where people are scared. When people are scared, they... They, they, um, they, they instill fear, and they and they play to people's fears rather than their hopes and dreams. And food is one of these things that sort of overcomes all those things, you know. And just sharing a meal with someone. You know, like Phil shares a meal with a Palestinian in Israel, the Israeli episode. And yes, it's a cliche, and not that there aren't maybe intractable problems between the Palestinians and the Israelis for a multitude of reasons, but at that moment, when he's sharing that meal, there's there's at least a glimpse of hope. And I think food offers the that kind of thing. And you're right, this is a time where, look, when people are scared, when they're like, they, they're, when, especially when they're scared in terms of their ability to make a living, you know, um, they're scared because they're surrounded by people they haven't always been surrounded by. Food is one of those things that can 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 glue those people together, you know. And and and, and I'm not so much of a Pollyanna person that I believe that it's the answers to all our problems, but it it can play an an important role now more than ever to me. It's like. You know, again, uh, Serious Eats was never about um, playing to people's fears. You know, and it, it really was about hope and dreams. And, you know, I hope it, it continues to be that way and, and to be a place where people can come together uh, it's more important than ever, even though it's an on. It's not a re, you know. It's it's a, it's a, it's a virtual um, clubhouse, but I hope it's still a clubhouse. You know. Where did you first find a real interest in food? You you went to a small liberal arts college, Grinnell, in Iowa. Was at that point in your life were you this into food? I was still. I was always obsessed with food. My mother was a terrible cook. My grandmother was a good old fashioned um, Eastern European uh, Jewish cook. You know, potato pancakes and blintzes and that kind of thing. And I always loved that. And I was always interested in food. And, uh, you know, I always tell the story of when I was in, I don't know, third or fourth grade. There was there were two stores near our school that we could get lunch from. And I would always get my bologna from one place and my roll from another because I thought the rolls were better. Oh, wow. So <laughs> even then, you know, I was sort of obsessed with creating the perfect bite, you know, and, and and then, but then I got sidetracked into another passion of mine, jazz, and I spent 14 years in the jazz business doing, again, everything I dreamed about and trying to bring 
people together and trying to further the cause. I'm a person who seems to have a need, a compulsive need to be on a mission. And my dad was a political activist, and my parents met, you know, at a, I think at a, at least family lore has they met at a Communist Party meeting in the 30s in City College, when a lot of poor people were gravitating towards what was then a very different form of communism, when it was very idealistic and it was still thought to, that you could be democratic. Of course, didn't evolve <laughs> quite that way, but um, and so and my brothers are like that too. I'm, I'm one of my one brother just died, but I had four brothers, and they all had the same missionary gene. You know, it's very interesting. It's like we all we hated working for other people, and we 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 really were interested in finding some essential truth about something and bringing it in a, to, the, to the world in a way that expands people's horizons or makes their lives better, you know. Do, do you think that this is a trait that you and your siblings share? Do you think that had anything to do with your parents' passing when you were young? Um, I think it might. Uh, you know, I never, of course, my, my parents died when I, my dad was when I was 12, my mother died when I was 15. I never talked about politics or missions with them, right? I never said, wow, it's so cool that you had this missionary zeal. Of course, by the time I was around, my dad was a businessman. My mother was a very active sort of PTA mom who was going to school and eventually became a school psychologist, which was hard for a woman. This was back in the 60s. Um, uh, early 60s and uh, so you know it was uh, you know it, it was it was the kind of thing that um, that I think must have been genetic it wasn't now my brother had lots of my oldest brother who was 11 years older and who adopted me when my parents died he engaged in apparently heated political discussions because he was actually more conservative than my than my parents and so they went at it but I think he probably got his we all have the we had a we believed in the power of ideas and I think that did come from our parents although I didn't even again I was so young right when you're 10 years old, you don't sit around thinking, God, my parents have very strong beliefs. You know, you're playing baseball or whatever you're doing. But my oldest brother got it, for sure. And was your oldest brother the one who invested in yeah, Serious Seats? he was the first investor. There would be no Serious Seats without my brother. Can you talk to us about what that was like getting investment for Serious Seats at a time when no such thing existed? It was really hard. And what I didn't realize was it's really hard until someone has to write the first check because it gives other people confidence that they're not just investing in a losing proposition. And so my brother kept saying, well, you know, if you, uh, if you, if you write a business plan and, and, you know, I had started blogging to figure it out and I met all these people and, and over time I kept going back to him with business plan after business plan. Finally, one day, it's like three months before we launched and everyone was working on, on, oh, when I get the money, I'll be able to pay you. So no one was getting paid, right? Nobody. There were three of us. Adam wasn't working yet, but there were a couple of other people people and they were all working based on getting some money when when I found investment money. The hope. <laughs> yeah, and then you know, I think it was Labor Day weekend in 2006, you know, my brother said, you know, I'm going to invest some money in serious seats. I have no idea if I'll ever get paid back. Uh, but I know how important this is to you. 
And in a way, you know, and then he, and then it was like, he kept the money in a separate account. He used to have to go to his apartment and sign out money. You know, it was like, it was like some kind of school thing. And of course that made for a lot of rough moments and there were a lot of tough moments. But I realized that because it was so new and I hadn't, I didn't say, oh, this is like the New York Times because it wasn't like the New York Times. And it would be a joke if I said it was, right? No one would believe me. He did it out of love and kindness and and um, because uh, he realized it was how important it was to me. And so now, in retrospect, I realized when I was going through it, there were 10 years and there were lots of down moments and my brother and I would disagree about things. I realize now it's like the fact that he did that was such an overwhelming act of love and generosity and kindness. just, you know, not just fills me with gratitude, but it makes me understand, like, this, the power of our, of how we bonded, you know, after my parents died, and that he, he would do that, because no sane person would have done it, right? And probably no one outside my family. Let's face it. But then other people came in. Right. Right? And so, you know, he wasn't, he may, he may have invested the most, but plenty of other people ended up investing in serious eats. But without that first investment, wouldn't have happened. So what would you tell someone who has an idea that they're really passionate about and they want to start something and they're looking for investors, but they are not fortunate enough to have a brother who believes in you. What, like, I'm sure you have people who ask you for advice all the time. I think the first thing is to really th- throw yourself into that world. Learn everything there is to know about it, the way I did about food blogging. Um, and then start doing it. And do as much as you can, because investors always ask for, oh, you know, proof of concept. They always call it proof of concept. Well, the only proof of concept is doing it. And so even when I, by the time I went to my brother, there had already been... Um, blog post that I'd written on Ed Levine Eats about eating at Thomas Keller's per se in New York and writing that I um, didn't know if it was going to be worth it because for the price of the lunch at per se, I could eat this famous hot dog place in New York, Gray's Papaya, for three months for lunch. And then when I got, and so I posted that at 11 o'clock, and when I got to per se, uh, about halfway through the meal, they brought out a cloche and unveiled a hot dog. They had read it. And so they said, oh, the chef wants to see you because in the in the blog post I had said, you know, when I ate at French Laundry, I thought I was worshiping in the church of Thomas Keller. And so I walked back and they said, oh, the chef would like to see you. And then Thomas Keller walks out of his office and he says, how was church, Ed? <laughs> so, you know, but that, that interaction and that post, that in a way was proof of concept. In other words, People were listening, so people looked for that. So I, my advice is always do as much as you can by yourself. You're a really good example of that. And 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 I think more than anything, right now, it is the era of the of the one person company. You know, I regard people like you. You probably don't think of yourself as an entrepreneur. Because a lot, you're doing it bootstrap. You know, I, I, you're doing without investment money. And it is hard to get investment money. When it all comes down to it, it's not the business plan. Yes, you have to do the business plan. And the business plan is somewhere between a work of fiction and nonfiction. Right? Because nobody knows what's going to happen. Especially now, because the velocity of change is crazy. In, in media, especially... 
But, um, you know, they're investing in you, and it's their confidence that you will be able to navigate these rapidly changing times in a way that you'll be a careful steward of their money and that they will have a chance to make some money very least get their money back or whatever you know and I was very lucky with my investors I only had one problem investor and we bought him out pretty early on uh, the other investors bought him out and but there are so many stories so you have to be careful desperation I will tell you drives you to bad decision making yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. I think, that, and that's cross industry, right? Yes. I, I I do think that you have a point. With it now feels like the age of entrepreneurship because one person is expected to do so much, and we have the means to do so many things. And you mentioned like you may not consider yourself an entrepreneur, but I, I actually do consider myself an entrepreneur, but kind of a scrappy entrepreneur. And I think that there are different levels of entrepreneurs, and like this whole conversation we're having about investing, this is going over my head, honestly, because I'm not the kind of investor who has had that, ex- or I'm not the kind of entrepreneur who has had that experience. So there are, there are multiple rungs of entrepreneurship right now, exactly. and I think it's this, continuing. I think we're in this, I have this theory anyway, that we're in this kind of, what we are now is in a very specific kind of creative entrepreneurship that all creative people, whether they want to be or not, often find themselves in the position of being reluctant entrepreneurs. Because the idea that someone like you will go to work at NBC, spend your life at NBC as a producer, CBS, or whatever, I don't think those career paths exist anymore. People are entrepreneurs. They may be reluctant entrepreneurs and they may have a fantasy that other people have it easier, but it's my theory that it's all hard. So you might as well, you know, I'll tell you, my friend Phil Rosenthal who created Everybody Loves Raymond, right? One of the most popular sitcoms in history. So he did very well, financially. It's like produced in, I don't know, 15 countries, including England. I don't know, I'm sure probably not on anymore, but... Um, and, he, and he got this piece of advice from Ed Weinberger, who's this famous sitcom director, you know, like Mary Tyler Moore and Taxi. And he was, the, in a way, he was the, one of the inventors of the modern sitcom. And Phil was having trouble with the studio that was making his pilot. And his pilot was about, you know, everybody I was dreaming was about his family, right? You know, and, and he was really, oh, you should cast this person, and he didn't want to, and let's make this person a woman, and, you know, and he was like, what? And Ed Weinberger said, Phil, you might as well make the show you want to make because it's going to get canceled at some point anyway. And I think there's a lesson to be learned for all creative people in terms of you should do the stuff you want to do. Because even if you do the stuff you don't want to do, it's not going to determine if it's successful or not. So if you do the show stuff you want to do, at least you know it's authentic, right? And maybe the marketplace will accept it and you'll figure out a way to make money and maybe you won't. But it also will help you grow, right? It's, it's all a process. And so, you know, it's like I said to you the other day, it's just keep getting better at the craft, whatever your crafts are, you know, shooting video, editing video, shooting, doing podcasts, writing stories, doesn't matter, writing books, just keep on getting better. Think about getting better because, and keep on doing the stuff you want to do. And yes, you might have to do stuff that you don't want to do along the way for money. But 
But you'll realize after a while that that's why you're doing it, you know. And then you're gonna, and that will probably drive you back towards doing stuff you love. So I think it's it's all in the what way you think and also what your needs are and what your definition of success is. I think that's what it all comes down to. Look, I didn't. I'm not Mark Zuckerberg, right? I didn't. You know, I, I didn't make a killing in the way that these guys make a killing in, in Silicon Valley. Not a unit. It was never a unicorn. And I never had a billion-dollar valuation. But I created something that gives a lot of people pleasure, and I. You know, and I've met so many people like you, and 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 just help them uh, take off. You know, and that's my definition of success. But I think it's the definition of entrepreneurial success in the new sort of reluctant creative entrepreneurial age. I think you're right. I agree and because that is my definition of success and that's one reason I'm so thrilled that you've been on this podcast with me because you represent that to me in so many ways. So uh, we have been chatting here in this restaurant for long enough where it has gone from the breakfast scene to the lunch scene. It's happening. Luke is happening. It's a good restaurant too. Um, So Ed, I I'm going to close with a question that I end all of my podcasts with. So as you know, the name of this podcast is Keep It Quirky. Behind that is a sense of don't take life so darn seriously. You have to just keep things quirky in order to enjoy life and sometimes to be more productive too. So my question for you is how do you, Ed Levine, keep it quirky in your life? You know, the way I keep it quirky, my life is defined by quirkiness because um, if you follow your passions, it's going to take you on a on a nonlinear path, on an idiosyncratic path, on a path that some people are going to find quirky. And what it means to embark on that journey is to take a subject seriously without taking yourself too seriously. I love that. I've you never know, considered this. Yeah, and that's what Serious Eats was all about. We took food very seriously, but we weren't afraid to laugh at ourselves. You know, and that's true of Kenji. It's true of Stella Parks, our uh, pastry wizard of, of Daniel Gritzer. They all understand that it's food. It's not... We're not... Um, solving the problems of the world, we take what we do seriously without taking ourselves too seriously. And to me, if you do that, you know, that's a sort of definition of quirkiness, you know, because that isn't the path that most people take, you know. And, and uh, you know, look, I've made, I've spent most of my life defying conventional wisdom, and I think that's part of quirkiness too. It's just like, and and also, you know, it's like you're defying expectations. And, you know, when people meet me and they always think, oh, you know, he must be a certain way. And then it's like, no, oh, he's kind of weird. And, you know, he doesn't think the way everybody thinks. But to me, that's part of being quirky. It's like, you know, having perhaps an original thought every now and then. Right. It's a strength. It's a yeah. Strength. Yeah, yeah. And it's not. And I think the world hasn't rewarded it in quite the same way it does now. I think I think quirkiness is now rewarded much more or thought of as an okay thing, whereas before it was like you have to follow the straight and narrow. So, you know, quirkiness was thought you that was an issue that you had to deal with. You know, and it's like, I've never thought that. It's like, you know, I always thought it was a compliment. You know, it's like, ditto. You know, well, Ed, thank you so much for being on this pod and uh, it's great to see you yeah, here in good London. To see you. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out with me. 
Thanks so much to Ed and thanks again to Better Almond Butter. You guys, I, I really love almond butter a lot. I mentioned earlier this episode, one way I like to eat it. I mean, I like to eat it stirred into my oatmeal in the morning too, uh, or just on a spoon. And Better Almond Butter is an almond butter brand that's reminding us just how delicious and nutritious almond butter can be and should be. Better Almond Butter is 100% organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, and paleo with no added oil. They are also committed to sustainability by only using glass jars and 100% recyclable shipping materials. I can get behind that. One last thing, all the almond butter is made by the founder in small batches in Brooklyn, New York. You can get Better Almond Butter in three flavors, sweet and salty, toasted, and truly raw. Head on over to betteralmondbutter.com and buy it with the offer code KEEPITQUIRKY to get 10% off the entire purchase. I'm not kidding when I tell you the almond butter is really stinking good. I mean, it's going really fast in my household. And also, it really helps the podcast if you buy it with that offer code. So please do. And thanks as always to my madly talented brother, Brian Quinn, for the theme song that you hear right now. And I'll see you all back here next week. Until then, don't forget to keep it quirky. Peace out. Thank you.